Well, it's great to uh, be back at the Master's College and be with you uh, here in chapel this morning. I love the Master's College. I had a great uh, time working on staff here with Mark and, and with uh, Dave Maddox. And uh, I could tell you a lot of stories uh, about Mark and Dave, but I won't take the time to embarrass them uh, this morning. But uh, I, I tell you, I'm really excited about what God is doing uh, in the Master's College, through the Master's College, and in your lives as you're being prepared uh, for the future. And when I was here at the college, one of the things that uh, the college was strongly committed to, and I know they're committed today, is to uh, establishing uh, students who would be churchmen with a world vision and really having a focus that goes beyond uh, just America, but what God is doing around the world. And I, I praise God for the many students who uh, are going out on summer missions trips. And uh, I, I just it's just amazing to me uh, the impact that you can have as college students uh, in people's lives and for the sake of the kingdom, which is really what it's about. I, I loved uh, worshiping God together with you this morning. I, I uh, so much enjoyed uh, when I was here at, at Masters going to chapel and just being able to, to praise God together and, and uh, exalt Him. I appreciate Brent leading this morning. I feel sort of responsible uh, for Brent being here and uh, for the fact that he's going to be getting married uh, later this year, uh, we hired Brent to come on staff at our church and uh, set it up for him to be able to come to Master's College. And uh, he met Kristen, and I, I guess that's been a good thing uh, as far as I can tell. Uh, we're excited about uh, Brent and Kristen and their coming marriage in June. And uh, I know many of you are probably thinking about that topic of marriage uh, as you come to the Master's College. Um, I realize that most of you here are single, and uh, maybe we take a survey this way. How many of you are single here this morning? Good. That, that would be the majority of you. Good. I, I was accurate in that assumption. Now, I, I, I would assume that when you came here to the Master's College, none of you came here looking for uh, a marriage partner. That wasn't why you came to Master's. There's no uh, woman here that came for her MRS. I know that because I was, I was here, and, and that just isn't the focus of why uh, you come to the Master's College. You come here to learn and, and to get your degree and to be prepared for life, and, and I respect that. But I know that along the way, some of you are probably going to find that life partner. Some of you are really hoping, some of you in your devotions this morning prayed, God, let it be today that I find that person. And, and I realize that, you know, that, that it's just a topic. And, and, and next week is um, spring break, right? And, and you're all excited about spring break. One of the things that I remember about break time when I was here at Master's College, Christmas break and spring break in particular, um, a lot of students get engaged during that time of the year. And I, I don't know what it is, but that just uh, seems to be the way that things happen. I remember when I worked here at Master's, um, my wife and I had the responsibility for leading a, a group of, of student leaders in a small group ministry team context. And we had uh, 10 students in our small group, some guys and some girls. And over the course of the semester, four couples got engaged out of our small group. It was really quite incredible. Uh, Paul and Sue Martin, uh, Wiley and Leah Kennedy, Scott and Vicki Algier, and Harold and Mary Buzis all uh, got engaged out of that small group. And it's just amazing how that just happens when you're a student at the Master's College. Um, I remember when I, I graduated from Biola. Um, I'm very proud of that fact. Uh, I remember when I, when I first came on staff uh, at Masters, the, the first day I came to chapel, I, I wore proudly my Biola sweatshirt. And um, 
boy, what an introduction I, I made on campus. But I remember when I was at, at Biola, um, you know, dating and, and, and relationships, and it, you know, it was all very challenging to me. Um, I, I actually started out at, at Biola with a girlfriend, and uh, that didn't last very long. Um, and, and kind of out of the pain, you know, the pain of breakup and that relationship, I, I decided to um, just not date for a year. And I just, I was not going to date, I was not going to go out with anyone. And I came back my, my third year at Biola, and I decided that that was a really foolish thing that I had decided to take a year off from dating. And so I, um, I, I kind of caught up for last time. And in a period of about 10 weeks, I went out with 12 different girls. And uh, yeah, it was, it was quite exciting. And uh, some of you guys here, I think you, you need to, to understand that dating is a fun thing and these girls want to go out with you. They really do. Ask them out. They'd appreciate that. Um, anyway, I, 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 my dating career at, at Biola, I hope that means I was right when, when I hear that laughter there. Um, my dating career at Biola ended in one big fabulous weekend when I went on three dates in one weekend. Yeah, I did. I, uh, Friday night, I had a, a really great date. And, uh, and then uh, Saturday afternoon, it just happened to be kind of a little matinee kind of date. And then Saturday night, I had another hot date. And, um, and that was the end. Because that weekend, I went out with uh, my wife. And uh, from then on, I didn't date anyone else. It was her, and it was wonderful. And, and I loved uh, being able to date in the college setting. It's a lot of fun. Uh, where am I going with all this? Um, Proverbs 24 talks about how to build a home and how to have a sure uh, future for a successful marriage. And um, this morning, I thought it would be wise for us to consider what God's Word says about dating and, and uh, courting relationships. And what I want to look at this morning is just several things that I think you ought to consider before you say the words, I do. For those of you who are single this morning or who are uh, single again, uh, consider how to apply these principles to your dating relationships. And for those of you who are married, I want you to consider how you can pass these principles on to your children or even eventually to your grandchildren. But whatever your marital status is this morning, I want you to take time to evaluate these issues because the things I'm going to talk to you about this morning relate to your personal character. And it doesn't matter really whether you are single or married. So Proverbs 24, this morning I just want to look at uh, just a few verses as we get started. Proverbs 24, beginning at verse 3. It says, By wisdom... A house is built, and by understanding it is established, and by knowledge the rooms are filled with all precious and pleasant riches. A wise man is strong, and a man of knowledge increases power, for by wise guidance you will wage war, and in abundance of counselors there is victory. It's been my observation in marrying people, in counseling people and uh, those preparing for marriage and just observing people in general, it's been my observation that many marriages end and fail before they ever begin. So the message that I have for you this morning is a preventative message. 
It is to help us understand ourselves and, and understand the person that you're going to marry. And to help us really get a grip on the issues that we should consider before we say those wonderful two words, I do. And I want to begin this morning by giving you kind of a pop quiz. I know you didn't expect to come to chapel and have to take a test this morning, but I want to just give you a pop quiz. And I'd like you to uh, grab a piece of paper, grab a pen, whatever you're following along with, and just write down TRF to the following questions this morning about what do you believe about love? True or false? Number one, love at first sight occurs between some people. True or false? Number two, it is easy to distinguish real love from infatuation. Number three, this is good, people who sincerely love each other will not fight or argue. Okay, good. Those, those chuckles are probably coming either from people who are married or people who are in relationships. It's kind of been there, done that. Uh, number four, God selects one particular person for each of us to marry and he will guide us together. True or false? Number five, if a man or woman genuinely love each other, then hardships and troubles will have little or no effect on their relationship. Number six, it is better to marry the wrong person than to remain single and lonely. Mmm, think hard about that one. Number seven, it is not harmful to have sexual intercourse before marriage if the couple has a meaningful relationship. Number eight, if a couple is genuinely in love, that condition is permanent, lasting a lifetime. Number nine, short courtships, six months or less, are best. And number ten, teenagers are more capable of genuine love than our older people. Well, you've taken the test. Take a minute, look over your answers. If you marked false on all ten, then you understand what genuine love is all about. For everyone that you marked true, it was wrong. Now we're not going to grade you today, all you have to do is cover up your paper and nobody will see this morning how you did. It's amazing to me though that some states have tougher laws for getting a driver's license than they do for getting a marriage license. A little girl was asked by her teacher one time to draw a picture of what she would like to be someday. The little girl was, was kind of stumped and she looked up at her teacher and she said, well, well I want to be married and I don't know how to draw that. And what I want to do this morning is I want to draw you a picture. I want to help you to understand marriage and understand it on the front side, especially for any of you who might be considering getting married in the future. An article out of Good Housekeeping a while back said, it was titled, Before You Married. Before You Marry. And it said, six ways to learn everything you know, need to know about a man before you decide to marry him. And they gave this advice. Number one, watch him drive in heavy traffic. Now, if Deanne, my wife, had seen that, uh, I, I think she probably would have never married me. Okay, number two, uh, play tennis with him. Number three, listen to him talk to his mother when he doesn't know you are listening. That's a good one. Number four, 
See how he treats those who serve him, such as waiters and waitresses. Number five, notice what he is willing to spend his money to buy. And number six, look at his friends. Hmm. I thought that was pretty good, common sense, good information. But what I want to do today is I want to give you four areas to evaluate in your life. Four things to consider before saying, I do. And it all begins with asking this question. Am I the right person? See, the first question you should ask before you ever get married or consider getting married is, am I the right person? You see, marriage is more than just finding the right person. It is being the right person. I remember I had a list when I was in college. I had a list of the five or six or seven things that I was looking for in that person that I was going to marry. One of the top things on my list was I wanted someone whose education was paid for. I didn't want to marry someone I was going to go into, into debt with. You know what I'm saying? Really wasn't that important an issue, was it? Harry Emerson Fosdick said this. He said, it is not marriage that fails. It is people that fail. And all marriages do basically is show people up. I, I think he's right. You see, good people make good marriages. And the more that you can smooth off those rough edges now, the greater chance the two of you will have for a tremendous happiness in marriage. Tony Campolo, a Baptist pastor, professor at Eastern College, says this. He says, many people marry because they think that marriage will overcome the inadequacies of their own personalities, becoming complete persons through the complementary qualities of their mate. You should never marry hoping that the other person will compensate your inadequacies. You only overtax and destroy the other person in the process. The people who ought to marry are people who have become complete persons in their own right and bring to a relationship the fullness of personhood to be shared with another. Marriage can serve best for people who could easily stay single. If you feel like you have to be married, I really worry for you. I share sometimes with people who are single that if you have a bad attitude and you're miserable and, and you have problems, don't get married. Because when you get married, then you're just going to have two people that are miserable and have a bad attitude. See, basically what I'm saying is the first thing you want to do when you get down to your list of Miss Right or, or Mr. Right, the first thing you need to do is ask, am I right? Because you need to look at yourself. Are you a, a happy and contented person? You see, getting married isn't going to change that. Getting married isn't going to make you happy or make you content. William Coleman notes, marriage solves almost no problems. This sentence should be printed at the top of every marriage certificate. If you expect wedding bells to cure your hang-ups, back up and look again. But see, once you've attained a sense of fulfillment 
and contentment and in who God has made you to be and what God is making you to do. Then see, the person whom you marry can add immeasurably to your happiness because you already have an identity in Christ and you're not looking for that spouse to make you complete. You've got to be the right person. So what am I trying to say? I want to call us to take a look at ourselves and realize we can be changed. That's right. Those little habits that you've developed over the last uh, 18 to 24 years of your life, those can change. You can learn how to brush your teeth and use deodorant and all those things. It can change. But see how that changes really is the changes I'm talking about are not physical. The changes I'm talking about are internal. They deal with character. They deal with who you are, who God is making you to be. And the more that you can deal with those issues, the more prepared you're going to be for marriage. The more good alterations we make before we are married, the better the chances for a healthy marriage union. It's easy to buy into the thinking and say, well, I can't help it. I just, I am who I am. I just have to find somebody who accepts me the way I am. They have to take me the way I am. Forget it. No. Thank, thank God that isn't true. 2 Corinthians 5.17 tells us that when a person becomes a Christian, he is a brand new creature. Creation, creature, whatever. Uh, the old things have passed away. All things have become new. So you're not the same anymore. A new life has begun. And in Christ, you can be the right person. And whether you're married, whether you're single, ask God to make you that right person. Robin Anderson said, in every marriage more than a week old, there are grounds for divorce. That's a fact. You don't have to be married very long before you've got some reason to say, what did I get into and I want out of this? Believe me, just ask anybody that's married around you. But then he goes on, he says, the trick is to find and continue to find grounds for marriage. And that involves being the right person. So, we're ready. Here are the four areas that we want to evaluate this morning. The first part of being the right person has to do with emotional readiness. Am I emotionally ready for marriage? I want to flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I read a cute statement uh, from a little boy. His name is Alan. His age is 10. And he said, I don't know who I'll marry, but I'll tell you one thing. She'll have to sign a paper that says she takes out the garbage and I get to watch TV whenever I want. I thought that was pretty funny. And it is funny because it's Alan and his name is 10. But you know what's not funny? When he's 20 years old and he still thinks the same thing. That's not funny. He hasn't grown up emotionally. And I know a lot of people and they go into marriage and they're not emotionally ready for that marriage. They're not emotionally prepared to do what they need to do to make the marriage successful. They're not ready to give 100%. And they, they kind of come to marriage and they draw lines and they say, okay, I'm going to give 50, you give 50. And I want to tell you something. If you approach marriage with a 50-50 perspective, you're not ready to get married. You're not emotionally prepared. Because when you draw lines and say 50-50, you're always going to argue about which 50% it is. See, the marriage commitment is 100%, 100%. 
And you've got to be ready and mature enough to be willing to give and add value to the other person's life. You can't go into marriage for what you're going to receive. But you go into the marriage for what you're going to be able to give. And that's the kind of love that is necessary. If you look at love in the New Testament, the Bible commands me to, to, to love. Ephesians 5.25, it says, I'm to love my wife. Matthew 22.39, I'm to love my neighbor. Matthew 5.44, I am to love my enemies. And in Mark 12.30, it says, I'm to love God with all my heart, soul, and strength. You see, what, one of the things the Bible teaches about love is that it's something that you can control. That you have control over your love. You see, too many times we think, oh, I can't control love. It's just something I kind of fall into. I just can't help it. I'm, I'm in love. I think we've been misled by this phrase, falling in love. It, it's kind of like it's this, this sudden infection. You know, or love either hits you or it doesn't. And, and when it does, well, then you can't do anything about it. And well, if love misses you, well, then you're just kind of sitting there hopeless. And many singles wait around trying to see if that love bug is going to bite them. But you know, life simply cannot be blamed on an outside force. You know, we can't blame love on some chubby little cupid in a, in a diaper, you know. See, the responsibility for love and all of the fantastic benefits rests squarely on your own so shoulders. So as you consider what kind of a marriage partner you will make, let's look at 1 Corinthians 13, beginning at verse 4, which gives us a great description of love and really a good evaluation tool to say, are you emotionally ready for marriage? Love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. It does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked. It does not take into account a wrong suffered. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. I encourage you to do a study through every one of those phrases. And consider it from an emotional standpoint of what is love really all about. Love is patient. That, that means you don't push your partner. Where he doesn't want to go. It doesn't force issues. Love is kind. It doesn't uh, behave in, in a coarse or crude way. It's gentle. It not only hears what's being said, it also hears what is meant. Love isn't jealous. You know, when you go bowling with your partner, you don't get jealous when she beats you. You congratulate her. You tell her she did a good job. There's always next time. Love isn't proud, doesn't brag when it's right. Love isn't selfish, uh, it isn't rude, doesn't demand its own way. These are all emotional characteristics here that relate to your choice to love. Love doesn't hold grudges, that's, I mean, that, that's really important. There's no little notebook where you write down kind of an account of all the wrongs that they do. After you have a problem and you discuss it and you, you make up, you leave it in the past. Love doesn't demand its own way. It's, a, it's mature enough to know when to give in. 
willing to go shopping with your wife without complaining. Love expects the best. Love wants to believe that your wife threw away your old best shirt on accident, that it was a mistake. Love never gives up. You know, a lot of things fail. Money fails, youth fails, motorboats fail, waistlines stretch, teeth vanish, eyes weaken, your skin wrinkles, your head goes bald. Love and love alone never gives up. And you see, what I, what I want you to understand about love this morning is that love is a choice. It's profound and simple at the same time, but when you are emotionally ready for marriage, you understand that the choice is yours to love. And in the end, I must determine if I choose to be in love. I want you to know, I love my wife today because I made a choice to love her. And no one can take that away. Why do, why do couples stay together? After you, you've been married for 15 years, you know what? There's going to be a lot more attractive people out there who are younger than you and more attractive than, than maybe your spouse. Many of your friends may end up getting divorced. Why are you going to stay together? It's because you choose to love each other. It's a conscious and voluntary decision. It, it's not based on a feeling which may shift with the next wind. It is based on a choice. For those of you who are waiting to get married, you might protest. You might say, well, wait a minute. You can't kind of turn love on and turn it off whenever you want. Kind of like the buttons on your TV remote control. And that's correct. But we can't let our passions just run wild and, and be controlled simply by our emotions. We dare not love without control. It isn't easy to be the master over love, but it is essential. And you might wonder, well, you know, if, if, if it's a choice, then could I choose to love someone else? Certainly. I could choose to love someone else. I have loved other people before. I could do it again. But by choosing one person to love, I have drawn a line. I have drawn a boundary that says I am not going to love anyone else in the same way that I am committed to love my wife. And that is a mature love that is more than a feeling. One of the most beautiful love stories in the Bible is the story of Isaac and Rebekah. They had never, ever met each other. Their marriage was arranged by Isaac's uh, father and, and his servant. Yet their romance is beautiful because their expectations were so high. Never having met each other, they chose to love each other. In Genesis 24, 67 we read, And Isaac brought Rebekah into his mother's tent and she became his wife. He loved her very much and she was a special comfort to him after the loss of his mother. There are too many people headed to the altar who are not emotionally ready for marriage. They do not love each other with this kind of commitment. And before you decide to give your love to a person, you need to understand that love is not an irresistible force. Maybe you can remember the first time you fell in love. I remember my first little uh, girlfriend that I had in, in, the, uh, in, the, in the first grade. Her name was Karen Sanders, and boy, did we love each other. But all that's left of that love is pleasant memories. i got to tell you, it's definitely over between me and Karen. 
what do, what do I want you to know? Love is a controllable force. And no one needs to fall in love. Biblical love finds its anchor in commitment. And it's a commitment to nurture and strengthen that love for the rest of your life. Well, secondly, I want to talk a little bit about financial readiness. Am I financially ready to make this kind of a commitment? And I read a cute statement recently. It said, don't marry for money. You can borrow it cheaper. A young couple's small group, they were studying about Abraham and Sarah. And how that when they had Isaac, they were in their 90s. And the, the small group leader turned to the other couples in the group and he said, well, what, you know, what do we learn from that lesson? One of the young mothers blurted out, they waited until they could afford it. Financial preparation. You might be surprised to learn that money matters cause the most conflict in a marriage relationship. In fact, it is estimated that the root cause in 75 to 80% of all divorces is clashes over money. It's interesting to note that the New Testament addresses the concept and subject of money more than any other subject, except for the kingdom of God. In fact, the scriptural messages on finances are very clear. You can sum it up quite simply. It's this. God owns it all. God owns it all. And it is our responsibility to be good managers of the resources that God has entrusted to us. 1 Corinthians 4.2 tells us, Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. Our only responsibility that God gives us is that we be faithful with what He has entrusted to us. We are required to be faithful no matter how much He's entrusted to us. I remember when it was getting around the time that I wanted to get engaged, I, I didn't have a very good paying job. I was working uh, at, the, at the library at Grace Community Church uh, making about five bucks an hour. I'm thinking, how can I afford to get married? Maybe some of you are, are in similar situations and you're paying for school and you have no idea how much it's going to cost. Let me tell you what God requires of you. What God requires of you is very clear. We are required to be faithful regardless of how much or how little we have. And the parable in Matthew 25 of the talents illustrates this. Matthew 25, we read, it says, For it is like a man about to go on a journey who called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. And to one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, each according to his own ability. And he went on his journey. And when the master returned, he held each slave accountable for faithfully managing his possessions. Listen to verse 21 as the master commends the faithful slave, the one he gave five talents to. He says, well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Interestingly enough, the slave who had been given two talents received the identical reward as the slave who had been given five. You see, God rewards faithfulness regardless of how much we've been responsible for. We are required to be faithful whether we are given much or little. But second, 
Second thing I note here is we are to be faithful in handling all of the money that God has entrusted to us. God expects us to be faithful in handling 100% of it, not just 10% of it. As the parable of the talents here illustrates, the Lord will hold us accountable for how we handle all of God's money because God owns it all. And each one of us will ultimately stand before the Lord and be asked to account for how we manage our money and possessions. Money, the love of it, how you earn it, how you spend it, tells more about your priorities than almost any other area of your life. When we begin discussing monetary issues, we can all see very clearly greed and selfishness and covetousness as well as generosity and good stewardship and wisdom. You see, money is is simply a, a medium of exchange. But the use of it gets tangled up into all kinds of complexities. Love and power and family relationships and value. For some people, controlling the money in the family means having the power in the family. As you prepare for marriage, what I want you to consider is your perspective on money and finances. Luke 16:11 says, "If therefore you have not been faithful in the use of worldly wealth, who will entrust the true riches to you?" See, Jesus in this verse equates the how we handle our money with the quality of our spiritual life. And if we handle our money properly, according to the principles of scripture, then our our fellowship with Christ will grow closer. However, if we handle our money unfaithfully, then our fellowship with Him will suffer. See, the amount of money you have when you get married is not what is important as your attitude toward money and toward possessions. Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 21. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in or steal. Verse 21, For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. We're to love people and use things. Not love things and use people. We're not to to treasure our possessions more than we treasure the relationships in our lives. Because our heart will be where our treasure is. The greatest treasure that you have will be your relationship with God and your relationship with your chosen mate. And I would challenge you to cultivate an attitude and behavior of faithfulness as a good steward while you are still single so that God will honor and reward you. The third area I want to talk about this morning is moral readiness. Moral readiness. How do we keep ourselves morally pure? Especially in a society that has unbelievable pressure, not only on single people, but on married people as well. I want to talk about moral preparation, but this isn't just for you who are single. This is for you who are married. Because if you're not morally prepared as a single person when you get married, you will not be morally prepared either. How you conduct yourself morally has nothing to do this morning with whether you're single or married. 
In fact, you are very naive in this room this morning if you think that married people are not tempted sexually to be with another person. You are extremely naive if you think that you can fix your problems of lust by getting married. Thinking that those problems will not come back. They won't, they won't rise up again. And you are extremely emotionally naive if you think that moral preparation is just for a single person. If you don't get morally prepared as a single person, somehow when you stand before that altar and you say, I do, and the pastor pronounces you husband and wife, you're not suddenly all of a sudden, it's not just going to happen, you're going to get your moral life together because somehow you walk out of the door and now you're married. Let me tell you something. If you do not get your moral life together now, there is absolutely no guarantee that you'll have it together tomorrow. So I want to talk for a little bit here on how do we keep ourselves pure. And I just want to make three suggestions. Number one is to commit yourself to a biblical perspective. And there are two perspectives out there that you can have about sex. One of the perspectives comes from the Word of God. The other comes from the world. God's Word says that we are not to commit adultery. God's Word says that we are to be His people and it should not be said about us that we are immoral or that we are indecent. That's what God's Word says. But the world says something totally different. In fact, I want you to listen to a statement that came out of Newsweek magazine by a lady, her name is Deborah Conan. She was giving career advice to a class of 7th grade girls on America's Take Our Daughters to Work Day. Here's what the world thinks. Here's what this lady attorney told seventh grade girls on this day. She said this, sleep around all you want, just don't get married. That is the thought of our world. And you see it everywhere. It is the absolutely prevailing thought of our society. How are we as Christians to respond to that? 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 gives us a biblical perspective. Listen to what it says. Let me add this, dear brothers. You already know how to please God in your daily living, for you know the commands we gave you from the Lord Jesus Himself. Isn't it interesting? He says, you know. You know how to please God. You know the commands. Now we beg you. Yes, we demand of you in the name of the Lord Jesus that you live more and more closely to that ideal. In other words, he says, you know what is right. Here's what we're asking you. We're asking you to live closer to the ideal that you know. For God wants you to be holy and pure and to keep clear of all sexual sin so that each of you will marry in holiness and honor, not in lustful passion as the heathen do, in their ignorance of God and His ways. And this also is God's will, that you never cheat in this manner by taking another man's wife, because the Lord will punish you terribly for this, as we have solemnly told you before. For God has not called us to be dirty-minded and full of lust, but to be holy and clean. If anyone refuses to live by these rules, he is not disobeying the rules of men, but of God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. First thing that I would appeal to you this morning, in keeping morally pure and being prepared for marriage, is that you have this biblical perspective. And this is not some kind of simple thing that, that Dave DeVries came here and made up this morning. To kind of keep everybody on the right side of the line. These aren't Dave's words. These are God's words. 
And if you and I do not keep ourselves sexually pure, we're not disobeying the church's rules, we're not disobeying the master's college rules, we're disobeying God's word and God's regulations. We have to have a biblical perspective. Ephesians 5.3 says, Do not let immorality or any impurity or greed even be named among you. Colossians 3.5 adds, Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. Romans 13.13-14 says, Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. God's word is very, very, very clear. Abstain from sexual immorality. Sexual abstinence isn't just the message of of the safe sex advocates. It is the standard and the expectation of God's word. 1 Corinthians 6.18 makes it clear. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Get a biblical perspective. The second thing, if you want to keep yourself morally pure, is to establish a personal standard of purity. I want to get into the areas here that are absolutely essential for you to keep moral integrity in your life. You have to establish a personal standard of purity. If you have not started dating, you're very fortunate. Really. You can establish that personal standard before you date anybody. And you never have to have crossed that line. Lay it out. Write it out. I encourage you, write it down. What is your standard? Make it clear. If you're already dating, I would encourage you to back up long enough to evaluate and develop a personal standard of purity in your life. Let me tell you why I think this is so important. There are two laws that I want to share with you this morning. One is the law of differences between male and female. You see, girls respond emotionally. Boys respond physically. Girls play at sex for what they fundamentally want, which is love. Boys play at love for what they fundamentally want, which is sex. And then there is the law of progression, which is this. The more you do, the more you want to do. And the more you do, the more it takes to satisfy you. See, what happens is this, the farther you go along in your sexual relationship with someone else, the more you're going to want. You emotionally begin to express yourself to others and, you know, at first it's, it's just eye contact and it's, it's words and it's, and it's symbols. And then it starts to progress from just an emotional expression, there's physical expression. And maybe you're, you're holding hands, you know, rubbing on each other's backs, uh, giving a hug, kissing, making out. And all of a sudden, there's this big, black, dark line. Huge, black, thick, dark line. And on the other side of that line is petting and oral sex and intercourse. And as you start to cross that line, you are beginning to violate God's moral standard for you. And you see, the, the problem is this, and the reason I don't want my kids to date till they're 35, if I could help it, is that the more familiar you become in your relationship with someone, and the more you get over into even some of the physical expressions, they seem so natural, they seem so reasonable. The closer you get to the areas over that line, and you get over there, and you're, and you're, you're bumping into that line, and you're 15 or 16, and you know you're not going to get married till you're 22, 23, 25, 
you got a long time to wait. And I can tell you right now that if you get too involved physically, even at the holding hands, casual, touching, physical contact stage, then you're leading yourself down a line where you have these natural desires in you that want to express themselves. And you're going to begin to break down. And you're going to begin to compromise. And you're going to begin to rationalize. And you're going to begin to do things that you should not do. And once you cross that line, people, you've hit the point of no return. And there's no turning back. Because once you cross that line, there's an appetite. There's a hunger. And you've got to nail down where that line is. Don't think that when you're out on Saturday night and you're out on that hot and heavy date and you're like, oh, yeah, where was that line? I'm going to put it here. That you're going to get it in the right place. It's too late then. You've got to draw your line this morning. See, it's a lot easier to draw a line here in chapel on Monday morning than it is to do it when you're out on a date alone together. Know what inappropriate behavior is and commit yourself never to cross the line until marriage. And keeping yourself morally pure. Number one, commit yourself to a biblical perspective. Number two, establish a personal standard of purity. And number three, know the reasons why you say no. See, don't say no because, you know, well, the church is out to inhibit your fun. Or, or don't say no, I got all these friends that are married and they're enjoying sex. And then they turn around and say to you, well, hey, you can't have it till you get married. And, and so all of a sudden you got to say no. I learned a long time ago that if you don't know why you should say no, then you're not going to be able to resist temptation when it comes. Josh McDowell has said, History shows that when a generation fails to know why they believe what they believe, their convictions are in danger of being undermined. Not knowing why you want to say no will damage your moral conviction. And you won't be able to resist. I, there's two principles I want you to write down that are inherent in every negative command from God. The first is the principle of protection. The second is the principle of provision. Let me talk about the principle, first of all, from of protection. God says we are not to have sex before marriage because it will protect us from several things. Number one is a sin against your own body. You sin against your body and you sin against the body you have sex with. Number two, it will protect us from an addiction to sex. Number three, it will protect us from sexually transmitted diseases. And I know that you already know all about that. But I'll just say it right now. There is no such thing as safe sex, even with a condom. That's the world's answer. We know that it's a failure. What else? It will protect you from unwanted pregnancy. It will protect you from God's judgment. It will protect you from hindering your relationship with God because we have violated His law when we cross that line. It protects you from comparison with others. If you deal with somebody that is sexually active, there's always going to be a comparing of you with the last person that they had sex with. It protects you from guilt from the hardship of breaking up. If you've gone too far sexually with a person, when you break up a relationship, it becomes extremely difficult. And number ten, it protects you from struggle with purity after marriage. If you break God's standard now, then the temptation is to do it again after you're married. And just as there is the protection from side of God's negative command, there is also the provision for 
is very simple. There's provision for beauty in a marriage relationship. If you've saved yourself for the person you're going to marry, then there's a beauty about the marriage that you can never give that marriage if you have not saved yourself for your partner. Number two, waiting builds trust. You're building your whole foundation for successful marriage as a single person before you get married. And if you get sexually involved before then, who's to say what will keep you from being sexually active after you've been married with someone else? (coughs) Number three, develops your maturity. Number four, it gives you a clear conscience. And number five, it gives you a special closeness in your marriage. It becomes extra special because it is a provision that God has made for you. Let me share something with you. It's from a secular writer, a book entitled Sexual Relations and Cultural Behavior. By a guy by the name of J.D. Undland, totally secular. This man conducted an exhaustive study of 88 civilizations that have existed in the history of the world. And each culture has reflected a similar life cycle. Beginning with a strict code of sexual conduct and ending with a demand for complete freedom to express individual passion. He writes this. Every society that extended sexual permissiveness to its people was soon to perish. Of the 88 cultures and civilizations, there have been no exceptions. God help America. Well, as I close our time together, I just want to talk about one last thing, and that is spiritual readiness. And when you include God in your relationship, you will have a covenant relationship that will not be taken lightly or broken easily. In Ephesians chapter 5, Jesus spoke about how his relationship to the church is like a marriage. It's a special uh, covenant, in fact. There's a oneness there. And that oneness is achieved when you share the same basic beliefs with your marriage partner. It's at the very foundation of your marriage relationship. And from that foundation of a strong relationship with God, you are able to build a strong marriage. Let me tell you this, people. The strength of your relationship with God through personal faith in Jesus Christ is the strongest and single most important factor in considering your your preparedness or readiness for marriage. How strong is your relationship with God? Don't think, ladies, that you're going to find a man who's very spiritual and you're going to marry him and all of a sudden you're going to become a, a spiritual, mature person because you married a spiritual, mature person. And men, don't think that somehow you're going to find this spiritually mature woman and she's Proverbs 31 to the T and oh, she's so wonderful and that she's somehow going to help you along spiritual. To have your relationship with God, be stronger. Don't bank on it. Your relationship with God and the strength of your relationship with God needs to come out of your relationship with Him and discovering that Jesus Christ is all you need. You don't need somebody else to come along and cause you to be spiritually mature. When it comes to spiritual readiness, there's really only one biblical command that's directed toward choosing and selecting your marriage partner. Let me just read it to you. It's out of 2 Corinthians chapter 6. It says, do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness or lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. In other words, Paul, as he writes here, he says, do not be unequally yoked. Don't mess around. Don't 
get emotionally involved with non-Christians. And the reason why is this. There is no fellowship together between a believer and an unbeliever. You're here to serve God, and they're here not to serve God. They're here to serve themselves. There is a, a diametrical opposition between a believer and an unbeliever. Let me go one more step. Not only do you break down the possibilities of a good marriage when you marry someone who is not a believer, and the facts say that there's 11 times greater chance of success in marriage if you marry someone of the same faith than someone who doesn't have that faith. But if I take it a step further, it's not only to ensure your, your success in marriage. The number one reason that you should not marry an unbeliever or even consider dating an unbeliever is because it is disobedience to God. God says it. As a believer, you are disobeying God's Word if you get emotionally involved in a relationship with an unbeliever. Listen to how one person states it. Words cannot express the tragedy of this situation. The Christian is mocking God by reneging on his or her commitment to Him. A Christian is committing idolatry by falling down before someone other than God, and he or she is blatantly disobeying God, who said we are to marry only within the faith. Life's not complicated. Maybe some of you are in one of those relationships and you know it's not right. And you think, oh, I'm dating this non-Christian and I'm going to win them to the Lord. Missionary dating. It's wonderful. It's the oldest excuse I've heard. It's never right to disobey God's Word to bring a right end. Let me tell you what you should do if you're dating someone that's not a believer or you're interested in someone that's not a believer. This is, this is what you need to do. If you want them to be saved, it's no problem at all. Just pray, God save them and then I'll date them. But don't date them expecting to be the vehicle. You don't have to compromise people. You don't have to compromise sexually. You don't have to compromise spiritually. As I close this morning, I just want to give you some words of encouragement. There's no doubt there are many single people here this morning. You've already crossed the line. There's many here this morning who, who undoubtedly have already had sex. And I understand the pressure. And single people, the pressures to compromise, the, the pressures to, to break down your standards are unbelievably great upon you. When I was here at Masters, I had to deal with several situations like that in the dorm. Uh, it, it just breaks my heart. We live in a highly sexually pervasive society. If you've had sex outside marriage, one thing I want you to know, and that is this, that God loves you. He loves you unconditionally. And if you ask forgiveness, let me tell you this. There is no sexual sin that God won't forgive. Be encouraged this morning. Today is the day for forgiveness, for repentance, to draw the line. And say, with God's help, no matter how far you've gone up to this point, to be able to say, with God's help, I will never cross that line. Today's a day to make a promise, a commitment to God, that three years, five years, seven years down the road, you'll be so glad that you did. Why don't you bow your heads with me as we would close. Today's a day for forgiveness for those who have already crossed the line. And for commitment for those of you who have not yet crossed that line. Too many marriages fail before they ever begin. Let's pray 
that doesn't happen to you. Lord God, thank you so much that you have not left us to make up our own minds on what you have for us to do here. But you have given us clear instructions, including regarding dating, marriage, the family, from your word. God, I would just pray right now for each person here, particularly those who are single, God, that you would enable them to cultivate such a close relationship with you that they can walk each day in dependence on you and and be able to to cultivate a, a true biblical perspective on dating and marriage and what's best. God, help them to persevere to the end. I pray these things now in Christ's name. Amen. You may just be dismissed. Have a great day.